You take an ancient dinosaur god and some toxic waste. You get a monster who stomps around and tries to eat your face. You take some kaiju media, some assholes, and a mic. You get a podcast that'll make you rethink your whole life. So come watch Godzilla with Podzilla, king of the casters with NBN Brandon and Jasper, who's a dog. Welcome to Podzilla, king of the casters. I'm your host, NB Nightingale. And I'm your other host, Brandon. And our producer, Jasper, is lying on the floor now. Bad Jasper. <laughs> He's the dog. <laughs> so today we'll be discussing in our inaugural episode, Brandon. Oh, episode one. Big, big deal. We will be discussing 1954's Godzilla. The first of them all. For reference, Podzilla is a Godzilla and other kaiju-based podcast that discusses media involving those things. So, uh, yeah, so let's uh, start with just uh, brief initial reactions before we uh, go into things. Uh, I personally, this was my first time seeing the film all the way through, and I thought it was really good. It was... Uh, the human parts were boring in places, which is a very common uh, criticism of any Godzilla film. Something you just kind of have to live with. Uh, and But I thought, one, the theming was well layered through, which we'll discuss more in depth later. And two, we just got some cool monster action. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would, building on that, I would say it felt a similar way. This is my second time watching the whole movie through. Um, I saw it the first time around a week ago, so very uh, frequent uh, back, very, not a large gap of time between those watches. And I think I enjoyed my time on the second time more, but it's often how a lot of movies work. Yeah. Where um, it was a fun time. <laughs> it, wasn't, it was a good movie. I think we will find ones that uh, satisfy our monster action and further ones in later in later uh, films. Yeah. But as an original one, I think, um, especially for 1954, a lot of the effects are very impressive for that time period. Yeah, that's the thing about Godzilla films. As they keep going, the stuff that we liked gets even better. The stuff... That we didn't like so much, like the human drama, gets so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) We're balancing it out. Yeah. We're like, man, I wish there was just more monster action here. Then like the monkey's paw curls. (laughs) And that monkey is King Kong, and he's going to punch us in the face. Yes. Yes, he will. Uh, Yeah, so we're going to start... With a uh, little segment we're doing on the show, uh, what that monster do, uh, in which we discuss what the monster of the movie actually looks like, how they move, and all that. Of course, we're doing Godzilla uh, himself, uh, which is one of the most famous character designs of all time. Uh, so, Brandon, you've got a background in animation. Uh, you do rigging mostly, but you've also trained in character design a bit. Uh, 
what are your opinions on the uh, Godzilla's design and movement? Yeah, I don't think it was very memorable. I don't think this Godzilla character is going to last very long. <laughs> no, um, so I can give some background because obviously there is a lot of background information regarding this movie compared to many others in this genre. Yeah, I was researching and I researched into some of the alternate designs that were considered and uh, we can discuss that after. Yeah, so I can start with... um. So Godzilla 1954. So when they were designing this creature, they originally did not struck, they didn't strike down on a, oh, this is going to be kind of a dinosaur design at first. There was, as you're saying, a lot of different angles they approached this at. Yeah, one of the early ones was actually reused in uh, Godzilla versus King Kong, or King Kong versus Godzilla, the, uh, the fir- original one. Uh, with guys in suits, not the CGI fest that we uh, that we've all watched in recent days. Uh, but because uh, originally one of the early concepts was a giant octopus, which is the villain of King Kong versus Godzilla. Ooh, that'll be interesting. It's like a final version Godzilla versus Beta Godzilla. <laughs> so, anyways, um, so Godzilla nineteen fifty four though, when they were designing this character, yes, he. He was originally going to be an octopus, and they sort of shifted into... They had more of an idea of combining a gorilla and a whale together was kind of a concept they were thinking about. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, the original name for Godzilla in Japan is Gojira, and the name Gojira is a combination of the Japanese words of gorilla and whale put together. Gojira. So they had this design in mind, and they sort of created a amalgamation of those creatures. Like, he's in the water a lot, but he is definitely strongly based off of a dinosaur, but not the modern dinosaurs we know about from, like, Jurassic Park. More based on what they, you know, older, like, early 20th century drawings of dinosaurs, where they're really, like, fat, and they're, like, bipedal, basically. Yeah, yeah, we got one of those in a... In the movie itself, where we get a picture of an old T-Rex, uh, what they thought they looked like, and he looks like a weeble. Yeah, he, he's definitely upright. So they thought um, that's what they looked like at the time, along with the... So he kind of looks a lot like a a dinosaur, but a little, a little bit of those gorilla-like characteristics with him. Like he's a little rounder, a little bigger, like more bipedal. And on top of that, specifically his back spines, I think, are one of the most iconic parts of his design. Because yeah. if you took the spines out, you can maybe think, you can mistake that for just any other dinosaur. Mm-hmm. But they gave him the spines of a Stegosaurus was their inspiration. And if you noticed during the scene in um, the scientist's, like, the office of his, there is a Stegosaurus skeleton. Yeah. So they're obviously calling back to that sort of design. So... It's a very strong design, especially for the time. Of course, it has lasted for so long. And it's just interesting that one of the other beta designs they were considering when they were making him was to make his head, quote, look like mushroom clouds. Yeah, I saw the, uh, uh, which, you know, in my opinion, might have been a bit too far with the subtext they were going for, which already becomes text in a lot of places but uh but yeah with the whole 
Godzilla being a metaphor for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, or just nuclear weapons in general. Because um, a part that's hard to notice, um, by the way, this movie can be seen currently legally on HBO Max at the time of this recording. So you can see it there, and I believe it's it's got to be higher quality than like 360p or anything. Yeah. Like it's an HD version of it. I think in that you can tell more about the when they were designing his skin and everything. They wanted it to kind of look like burn marks, like he's damaged in a way. Like you know, you're gonna. Yes, you know. know obviously, <laughs> he's got no, the no. forehead tattoo. Damaged. No, like, <laughs> he was the Jared Leto's Joker of his time. <laughs> oh Nuclear radiation marks on his forehead. It says damaged. Oh my goodness. So yeah, he's he looks like he's been affected by radiation and like scarred by it. Because making a very harsh turn, when exposed to radiation a harsh amounts, you do get radiation burns. And they try to show that on his design. But you can't really notice that as much in a lot of the scenes because I guess we can get into uh, the film visually because it's very Very dark. dark. (laughs) Yes, it is so dark. And like Godzilla's costume in particular is pretty much looks like a walking silhouette most of the time. He's just because he's always... Most of the attacks he does are during nighttime, and it's just inky black, his his uh, look then, which obviously, of course, when film transitioned to color, uh, the series would show that Godzilla is actually green, but uh, for us in this first movie, he looks uh, inky black. Yeah, I made a note of, um, I wrote down that the daytime is dark and the nights are even darker <laughs> because um, it is definitely a very dark visual film, but I feel like that, yeah, we can just talk about like the overall visuals and everything now, but then I'm going to make my way back to uh, like the design more about the like construction of that suit. Cause there's some really interesting things about that. That poor, the poor actor in that suit. Uh, you said you uh, looked up his name earlier. Yes, yes, yeah, his name is, pull up this section here. Yes, yeah, so he's Haru Nagajima, Nakashima, and he's, yeah, he was, this was his first portrayal of Godzilla, obviously, and he would play Godzilla for up until almost every Godzilla film until Godzilla vs. Gagan in 1972. So for 18 years, he was in that suit. It really sucks that they didn't take the actor from the off-Broadway play. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, the actor though, the inter- so bringing up the... Poor, the poor suit just, you can see at points just how limited his motion is. Like, uh, when the fighter jets are firing missiles at Godzilla and he's swatting at them, but it's not like a big, like, monstrous swat. Kind of looks like, like flies are around him, like, which this is a very visual joke, which is a great start for a podcast. But uh. (laughs) so, um, here's the thing: is that um, you're bringing up his movement, right? Yeah. His movement, how he moves around, everything. Did you notice his left arm? Uh, 
nothing in particular about the left arm. Exactly, exactly. Nolan. It pretty much doesn't move the entire movie. <laughs> During the production, apparently it was extremely difficult for Nagajima to move his left arm. So, you know, in our perspective, it's the right side of him. Or it's the, um, yes, the right side of him when he's facing towards us. It was a very difficult for him to move his right arm. In particular, he could not move the hand at all. <laughs> so if you go back and watch it, anytime in this movie, Godzilla is picking up something, smashing something with his hand, etc., has to pick things up, anything involving the arm, specifically the hand, he always uses his right arm. Because it was the only one that worked. <laughs> that is very interesting. <laughs> you can watch it, and interesting, um, in a lot of the silhouettes you're talking about, it is his right arm that is extended for that silhouette. Because his left arm, most of the time, is hanging at his side. Because yeah. it's very hard to move it. I think the only time I noticed he moved his left arm at all was when he was swiping at those planes. And it was, like, very limited. Yeah. As you are saying. So there was a lot of interesting things about... um. The suit itself was very, very heavy at the time. It was a, or not at the time, now it still would be very heavy. And it would go up to, when he was in the suit, Nakajima, he, it would get up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit in the suit. Which, if you don't know, is like about 25 degrees less than what you need to cook chicken. <laughs> very hot. It was so hot that he would pass out during production sometimes. And they would basically have cups of sweat they would need to get out of the suit because it was that bad. And um, there's interesting things where I read that, you know, you widely think they'd be rubber, right? Yeah. But actually it wasn't. The f- there was two suits that they had built for the movie. There was the pro- – they called the prototype suit and the main suit. And the prototype suit was, from what I was reading, very hard to use or practically unusable – because they did not have, in post-war Japan, rubber was pretty hard to come by. It was very simple. So they never used, they didn't use rubber to build those suits. The prototype suit was made with ready-made cement. Jeez. So that was, of course, insanely hard to move. To the point where they had cut that suit in half. And they only used that prototype suit in close-ups where his feet are stomping around. That's the only part you see the prototype in is because they cut the suit in half. So that's just the legs. The main suit was made with some like plastic polymer thing, but was never rubber actually, which is weird, which is interesting. But um, the interesting thing, another thing I wrote in is that when there's close-ups of Godzilla in the movie, right? There's film, there's shots where he's shooting his atomic breath out and he's just sitting there. Like you could just see a close-up of his head. And you notice that his eyes look kind of different than when he's from his zoomed out. Yeah, they are much bigger when the, when you're up close. Yeah, and the thing is, is because those were separate things. They noticed, I think they realized that in a close-up, his very rudimentary mouth was not going to cut it. So they have a, they use a hand puppet during those shots. I knew it! <laughs> I knew, I... I don't know why, but I had that very distinct thought watching this because I was watching how it, how the rubber kind of bunches up around his mouth when he, when he's moving his jaw, and I just thought, and I, I had the very distinct thought that this, it looks like a sock puppet, and oh my, oh my god. god, I I feel, I feel so validated. Right now. <laughs> 
Keep in mind, we did not talk about this beforehand. <laughs> oh my goodness. So then the um, so the thing I also want to bring up to origins about the suit, right? We can go more into. I want to talk about the origins of why they use the suit, because you know, that doesn't sound like a great scenario. It's this extremely heavy suit. Your actor is sweating to like sweating to exhaustion in there. Like, why would they do that instead of just using what? king kong did nearly 20 years before this movie and just made it stop motion like why did they do that and the reason is that i was reading that the interesting thing is because this was made in japan there were very few stop motion japanese animators at the time so they estimated that if they wanted to make godzilla completely stop motion it would take approximately seven years to do it (laughs) So they said, no, no thanks, that's not going to work. And they that's when they pioneered what's now known as Suit Nation, where it's someone in a suit doing the performance instead. Yeah, I think that that definitely works to the film's advantage, because as a big monster movie guy, I've watched many times the original King Kong, and the way he moves is so unnatural which works in its own in its own way in that film because he's supposed to be this scary otherworldly thing but in the first godzilla in particular there is a sense of realism they are going for with this monster uh with the fact that he is representing nuclear annihilation and uh and I think having a a guy in a suit moving around, making the motion more fluid and realistic feeling, just adds to that grounding. Yeah, of course. I think um, it's a very interesting angle they took. So that was so that's called Suit Nation. It was pretty much it was pioneered during this movie, and the interesting thing is that um, as you brought up that. In the end, that was the better choice because on top of that, when they were making the miniatures for the movie, right, they were able to give the miniatures significantly more detail because, you know, with uh, stop motion animation, like, I don't know how big the King Kong thing was back in the day, but he's not the size of a person in real life. Like, he's tiny. So keep in mind, they would have to make the miniatures even smaller. Yeah. So I got a note about the miniatures in this in that... So most of the miniatures they made in this movie were steel. So such as the like the the pole lines, like the telephone yeah. things. So do you want to know how that effect was created that was really, really good? Where the, the first time we see his atomic breath and it melts a uh, a telephone pole. Yeah, and it melts the telephone pole. So you wanna know how they did it? How? So most of the most of those were steel. They were made with steel. A few of them though, the ones that he melts, were made out of wax. They made those out of wax, which was not easy. That is very interesting. So, they made, so here's what they did, though. They made them out of wax, and then they blew hot air onto the these wax telephone props. So when they were melting, right? But how do you create the white? So they increased the studio lights to be even hotter and brighter to sort of white hot flame cover these telephone poles. And that's how they melted. And it it whole it's one of the shots that's like that's a pretty good effect. Yeah. <laughs> like I think that whole 
the entire Atomic Breath sequence uh, is, I think, effects-wise, the the pinnacle of the movie. That is where, like, there are some janky effects in this film. Uh, a lot of the miniatures don't work very well. There are some, even within this Atomic Breath sequence I'm about to praise, there's some, frankly, laughable scenes of... Like, pretty much just Hot Wheels, uh, Hot Wheels cars with little dolls on them being flipped. Oh, uh, the fire truck sequence? Yeah, the fire, when the fire trucks are getting flipped. And similarly, uh, the the helicopter we see get crashed early in the film. Oh, yeah, it's, it's like shaking because it's so yeah. tiny. And it's clearly supposed to be, like, from a perspective shot that makes it look huge, but it doesn't have the weight to look huge, but the the miniature buildings being blown up with fire is some of the best practical effects i've seen from that era of filmmaking and the absolute best part of the uh movie in my opinion yeah the effects are a lot of the time very impressive you know like you have to consider like the time period it's like how they can do that like there's some crazy things where um, bring up those miniatures that you're talking about, like the buildings they destroy. So they had over 500 of those built because they had to basically recreate Tokyo at a 125th scale for Nakajima to, you know, run around in. But you have to think, right? Like the, the thing that made uh, Nakajima so nervous during when he was filming in the Godzilla suit was he said that, he was anxious while he was filming because a single miniature was worth more than his entire salary. Jeez. And he was very nervous about breaking anything before they were recording. So they would set up this whole shot, like all these miniatures. It would take like all day to do it. And they would like record a few seconds of footage. <laughs> so that is terrifying. Imagine you're like working and you're just surrounded by stuff where you tap it. It breaks and there goes your whole salary. Like, yeah, that's a that's a crazy thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, anything else you want to say about the uh, the character and the effects? Um. Oh, water. For some reason, we we both felt this. Uh, when he when the suit is in water, and uh, you couldn't define why, and I certainly can't define why. I don't know if you realized anything in the time since you said it while watching i have but yes the uh, the uh but the godzilla suit for some reason is so much scarier when he's in water and emerging from it or peeking up uh than on dry land uh and tell us why if you've put it's some thought. well i've thought about it for a bit here uh, i'm gonna backstep a step here and we can talk a little more generally about how in my opinion like we've agreed on this that somehow since the movie has aged this much it has come back around to being really freaky at some points yeah the yeah, the, the godzilla roar that iconic roar uh i know we both we both experienced getting chills the first time watching that uh that credit sequence the opening credit sequence where godzilla's roar is playing over the uh credits uh and you said they did that by uh with a latex glove and violin string 
Yeah, so they took a they took a contrabass, the instrument. They took a contrabass and they rushed and they rubbed a glove that was soaked with pine tar across it to get that sound apparently. So it's a really spooky sound. But I guess it's just the overall lo-fi, the low technology nature of it that makes it like spooky. Cuz like if Godzilla was CG in this movie, it would not be the same effect. Yeah. It's just it's uncanny valley kind of thing i guess where it's that unsettling section of it that just makes it a lot more like this is like like this is a little unsettling so anyways um sorry i just want to talk more generally for a second about how that movie from this movie that's that this old can still create those sort of effects so i have a really interesting point about what we were just talking about with the wet godzilla (laughs) so here's the thing um wet so we both had the same reaction it was like when we see the godzilla suit in the water there is something in our brains that are like but like spooky bad no like <laughs> like checking off all the lights in the head so a reason for that is have you ever heard of sub mechanophobia i have not heard of sub mechanophobia so sub oh, i got some videos to show you after so sub mechanophobia is a it is a, f- basically, it is a fear of wet robots. That is the thing. So here's the thing. Hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. Submechanophobia is a fear of wet man-made objects is basically what the overall gist is. A lot of it manifests with like wet theme park rides or like wet um, animatronics. You know, like um, there's this one that like, undersea sea dragon thing in the disney world thing from underwater and it like shakes around spooky thing so i think it's the thing where when you watch this thing where godzilla is coming out of the water right first off the water is like completely black it's like very inky darkness so first off you don't know what's under the water then and then your brain takes a look at that and goes oh my goodness that's already spooky and then you make that connection where you're like i do not want to be swimming with that (laughs) Because then your brain goes, I do not want to be anywhere near that. And I think on top of that, just knowing how deep and dark the water is. And like, you know, we're not we're not built for water swimming. We're on land. So seeing something like that's far down and that deep in darkness, it's like, it's sort of the fear of the unknown in a way too. And it's like, it's, that's unsettling. So that's what's called uh, some mechanophobia. There's a lot of like old theme park attractions that get sucked underwater that are just like pretty spooky and i think that's attaching to that like the scene where i wrote down where they're on the boat they're on like the party boat and he just like emerges it's like one of the spookiest things in the movie yeah, and for some reason i can't get uh his tail flapping as he dives back down out of my head but yeah yeah it's it's very i think it's a very like the submechanophobia thing, I think, is a very new kind of fear people have found out about. But it's it's very aggressive with certain stuff. And I think even if the guy's in the suit, it's the lo-fi nature of it all that sort of makes you brain correlate that. Yeah. It's like... <gasps> no. And it's funny because do you notice you don't really get that same feeling at the end of the movie when Godzilla is like out of the water and he's getting like destroyed? Yeah. Do you want to know why that is? What? Godzilla isn't wet. 
in that part. Here's what they did. When they were filming that scene, you know, the divers are real in the ending scene of the movie. They were actually underwater and they had bubbles, all that stuff. That's real. Um, Godzilla himself was never under the water in that part. He was filmed, as far as I remember from my notes, on dry land. And they put what seemed to be like a fish tank in front of him, in front of the camera and him, in between. So it looked like he was underwater. But you notice your brain didn't, like, make that, oh, no, he's spooky and underwater thing. Because he wasn't really, and your brain didn't, like, it was too out there for your brain to be, like, spooked out by it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Any other things to say about the special effects before we go into the story proper and its comparative stuff with other stuff? I'm a good film critic. (laughs) Yes. So we are sort of making this podcast more as a, we are assuming you have already seen the movie a lot of the time. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, if you, uh. If you haven't watched the movie, one, I'm sorry for spoiling most of it at this point for you. Uh, two, go watch it right now and then finish the episode. Yeah, so, um, because <laughs> we are talking more about, like, the general of the movie so far. We haven't really gone into, oh, who's this character? What do they do? So, um, the last thing I want to mention is that this was the suit that appears in this movie, the, the not the prototype, the final suit. As far as I'm aware from my research, from the the notes I'm taking, it was the only time they used that suit. By the time Godzilla raids again, like a year later came out, completely different suit. It was the only time they've used it. So, uh, also gonna... yeah, that's the, that's it. That's for effects. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we're gonna talk about the story, which was a bit of a passion project for director Ishihoro Hondo, uh, which he made a very definitive film that was meaningful to him and has a very concise ending that closes all storylines. And then they made a giant franchise out of it uh, that never ends. So, uh, but, yeah, so the film... Obviously, uh, we are not the first people to say this, uh, is a giant metaphor for nuclear destruction in general and Japanese trauma from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hot Uh, take. (laughs) It is, like, the first time they make this explicit is, uh, Kind of in the first half of the movie with a random character who we never see again talking on the subway about being afraid Godzilla's going to come to Tokyo. Because uh, she says, I barely escaped the atomic bomb in Nagasaki and now this. And one, it's almost a laugh line with just how nonchalant she is about it. She's not talking about this as if it's a massive tragedy she's experienced. She's talking about it like, ah, oh, I just wrecked my car and now I, I crash it again? Oh, this sucks. Yeah, it's very <laughs> weird because keep in mind, this was less than 10 years after that, after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was yeah. nine years ago at that point. So that, that'd be weird. It'd be like in 20, it'd be like in 2010. It was like, man, and I was just at the World Trade Center. Yeah, if like, in Man of Steel, 
there's a scene while the city's crumbling around uh, some guy where he's just like, oh, geez, I left New York because of this. Yeah, like it, it'd be. It's a very weird um, connection or like it ties into the theme. It's just. From what we're seeing, it's like, oh, huh, I'm surprised it's there. And I'm I am. I bet good money that in the 1956 American out of the American cut. It is not there. Yeah, the American cut is literally just re-editing out a lot of the story stuff from the uh, Japanese version uh, and adding instead uh, Raymond Burr, uh, American character actor, as as an American reporter in Tokyo responding to the Godzilla stuff going on. Uh, But, yeah, so... When we finally get around to that, that'll be interesting to see how they handle that. Uh, but yeah, but then the climax does ultimately deal with this metaphor because uh, so this film doesn't really have a traditional protagonist. I would say uh, the closest to a pro- uh, to a protagonist uh, we get is. This character named Professor Doctor Sirozawa, uh, who his girls cheating on him with an American, with non-American, with a Japanese military boy, uh, and so, but he doesn't really, he doesn't really become prominent until the second half of the movie. Like he's got one moment uh, in the first half of the film uh, in which. He's wordlessly seeing uh, his girlfriend off on a boat, uh, and he's just on the shore with his eye patch and his sunglasses over his eye patch, looking like uh, looking like Slughorn from uh, from Willy Wonka. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then he becomes the protagonist of the film. Uh, it, it, I think in the later half when it turns out that he has created a death machine that could destroy Godzilla called the uh what's the oxygen, oxygen destroyer, destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> the oxygen destroyer and he doesn't want to use it because he doesn't want to unleash that kind of horror onto the world even though it'd be a really simple solution to destroy this giant looming threat. Because, again, metaphor. Which, the interesting thing about that metaphor is it puts the Japanese government in the place of the American government destroying Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which, uh, if we were better film critics, we could could ponder uh, what that means. But... It is a very interesting aspect, and the only pure humans scene in the film that I liked is in the argument he has between himself, his fiance, and the military boy who she's cheating with on him with, uh, in which they argue over the use of the oxygen destroyer, and he, uh, I'm going to look up, because uh, I don't know the name of the actor who plays Dr. Sirizawa, but he actually gives a really good performance in that section. In the meantime, I can I can bring up that the Oxygen Destroyer 
Maybe we'll see it in other Godzilla movies or other kaiju movies in general. But um, it is it is seen in the 2018 or 2019 Godzilla King of the Monsters. It has a small role, though. It doesn't or like it's not a big finale thing. Yeah, so the actor who played uh, Dr. Sirazawa is Akihiko Hirata, uh, just to give this most likely very dead man his due. Uh, but, let me... but yeah, so he gives a great performance where he ultimately decides, I've got to do this, but can only be a one-time thing. So he destroys all of his records and kills himself with setting the oxygen destroyer off in order to kill Godzilla, which, uh, which leads to, you know, one of the most surprising aspects of watching this film for me. They unambiguously kill Godzilla at the end of this film. We watch him get hit with the oxygen destroyer. We watch his body go limp. And then we watch him degrade into just a skeleton. And then the skeleton explodes. Yes. Like, gone. And so. Then, then he goes. Did you see the end credit scene? He <laughs> didn't do end credit scenes here. No, I'm joking. Yeah. But, but yeah, so that is a, again, with how definitive um, this film seems to be, it then ends with a wise, uh, professor character uh professor yamane uh giving a little monologue about how it's unlikely that godzilla was the only of his species so professor yamane giving a uh, little monologue about how it's unlikely that godzilla would have been the only of his species so if humans keep uh fucking around to find out about uh with uh atomic bombs and such uh then another godzilla might arrive which is clearly supposed to be a giant metaphorical statement on why we need to stop uh using nuclear weapons uh but instead i guess someone at a uh, toho studios decided sequels baby make that money what a great sequel hook <laughs> yeah kill the monster contemplate our mortality but wait if we're contemplating our mortality there's more monster <laughs> exactly i am curious i am almost again i know very little about godzilla i am almost a hundred percent 150 percent sure that the um godzilla raids again which is the one afterwards it's just the same one like there's not like, gonna be a new godzilla okay you think this when we get around to this film, which will be soon, not to spoil our uh, our episode uh, discussions coming up uh, too much, but it will be in the near future. Uh, we will see if it's just another of the Godzilla species, or if it is just the same Godzilla somehow. Godzilla. Well, you see, what happened was. Um... You know, you didn't see this because we didn't. We here's the thing: we watched the theatrical cut of Godzilla 1954. We did not observe the Godzilla Snyder cut from 2021. But this one was in four three aspect ratio. Exactly, the theatrical 
aspect ratio, Nolan. Exactly. Zack Snyder's one is an exactly one by one. Classic. So here's the thing. At the end of the Godzilla, here's the thing. Um, In the Snyder cut of the movie, Godzilla does, of course, you know, dissolve into bones and disappear. And then, all of a sudden, we cut to Flash, who's running so fast that he starts reversing time, resulting in Godzilla. And then Flash takes the, and the oxygen destroyer and just throws it. And then Godzilla's like, thanks, dude. And then that's where uh, Raids Again starts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if... So, uh, Godzilla is canonically in this version 165 feet tall, which I don't have the exact measurements on other forms of Godzilla, but I feel like that's going to prove to be a very small version of Godzilla. He's a, he's a big boy. Um, yeah, so, oh, one of the things that we found really funny was, um, how casual they were with radiation throughout the movie, which is they like no one, everyone's in like vacation gear when they're visiting the Island Godzilla is supposedly supposed to be on and, uh, checking around for readings and their heavy radiation readings. Cause Godzilla, you know, he has a lot of radiation going on about him and they're just having a grand old time, which is something that I know that, has always stuck in the back of my mind with the monster verse films, uh, with how casual they are about nuclear radiation. <laughs> well, in King of the monsters, they reference that like the radiation helps the plants and saves the world. And I'm like, I don't think that's what that much radiation's going to do. <laughs> like, I think we just have to accept the fact that in Godzilla films, radiation good stuff <laughs> drink up as much as you can get get your uh radiation pack. and sometime in the godzilla movies there will be a film where it's just like a giant man they have to fight jet jaguar is jet jaguar a giant man i don't know if there's a man inside the suit or if it's just a giant robot but jet jaguar coming soon to podzilla king of the casters oh boy yeah so um is there anything else we want to discuss relating to godzilla 1954 i think it was definitely you definitely tell it was a very landmark landmark movie when it came out because it's part of the criterion collection it's been talked about for i mean we're just talking about it now in 2021 and what was that 67 years ago it spawned the most comprehensive uh, cinematic universe outside of the MCU. Uh, I feel like that's not a controversial statement to say. My hotter take might be that it made an even more comprehensive one than the MCU. But uh, that's another issue. <laughs> that's our that's our big thesis. <laughs> so on top of that, um, as you're referencing, uh, Godzilla is now recognized by the Guinness... Genius World of, uh, Book of World Records as the Guinness a... Book of World Records. Yes, like the beer, not, not like Genius, Brandon. <laughs> the Genius Book of World Records. Where... We're just I'm gonna mispronounce any name, so that's way it's all set. So, um, in the Genius Book of World Records, <laughs> in the Guinness Book of Book of World Records, 
um, they recognize that Godzilla is the longest running franchise in movies of all time. Because you can't be 1954 to 2021 onwards. That's, That's right, right, baby. Woo! All right. So, um, uh, yeah. Anything else? Uh, that's, that's everything I want to discuss, and uh, it sounded like you got everything you want to discuss. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's everything we've got to say about the first Godzilla film. Uh, join us next week when we will be discussing a film with. That also carries the title of Godzilla, mm. uh, with a lot of fish in it. With a lot of fish. Godzilla 1998, directed by Roland Emmerich. Next time, baby! See you then.